Psalm 110. This is David, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be. So, so far in the story as we've been uh, reading it, um, and I would again encourage you to uh, make the commitment to be in the Bible right now, to be reading the story for yourself. Like, it's not my job to tell you, uh, to, to spoon feed you what the Bible says. Uh, God has given you the Holy Spirit, and he's given you access to uh, a gazillion and one different ways to access the Bible from apps to cheap paperback copies to big family Bibles. Uh, make use of it. Get yourself in the story. Let me uh, do this. I, this uh, my, my rehearsal gets uh, a little bit longer every Sunday, so I'm trying to talk faster at the beginning parts. Uh, so here we go. Hold on. God creates a big, beautiful world that's designed to reflect his glory, to reflect his passionate love for himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three of them. He brings human beings in this world, not because he needs them, not because he's lonely, not because he's bored, not because he needs slaves, but because that's what love does. The human beings, uh, me and you, and our father and mother, Adam and Eve, rebel against God, turn against him, and introduce all kinds of nasty brokenness into the world. We no longer have legit relationships with each other, we no longer have a relationship with God. We no longer have a proper relationship with the environment and the creation that God's called us to care for and watch over. And we ultimately all die, along with everything else that's been affected by the curse. It all falls apart. God doesn't leave it like that. He comes up with a plan. He tells Adam and Eve, I'm going to reverse this curse. I'm going to do it through your offspring, Eve. A human being who comes from you, somebody from the human race, is going to fix the problem that humans have started. Later on, we looked at the very, uh, very, very important Genesis 12, 15, and 17, where God says to, Ad, uh, to Abraham, I am, through you, Abraham, going to rescue the whole world. I'm going to give you land. We've looked at that. I'm going to give you offspring. We've looked at that, and we'll continue to look at that. And I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to give you, I'm going to reverse the curse. And I'm going to use you to give the world blessing, reversing the curse for the whole world. We looked a little bit of that last week as the conquest of the world begins. God's desire is to, 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 to control the whole world, not because he wants slaves, but because he wants children, not because he wants to, uh, to, to, to hurt us, but because he wants to heal us. That's where we ended up last week. God creates this people from Abraham, Israel, whose calling is to be God reflectors, people who were what Adam and Eve were designed to be, but couldn't be because they rebelled against him. God calls this nation to be a kingdom of priests, and he says, now go and do it. And of course they fail, he's, uh, we'll get to this later too, but he's, it's what he's called the church to do. The church is called to be a kingdom of priests, a community of God reflectors, people who look like God. 
to the entire world to reflect his glory. And we, of course, have failed at that, and yet he consistently insists, I'm going to use you people to do this. Well, early on in the game, he makes it clear that he himself is going to be the king of this new people. All, all the nations in the world need a leader or a group of leaders. But he says to Israel, I'm going to give you Moses a prophet, but I'm going to be your king. Way back at the beginning, right after he forms them as a nation of Israel, they get across the Red Sea Passover. They're standing on the far side. The, the foreign pagan army has been destroyed. And they sing this song in Exodus 15, the song led by Miriam. And the very last line of the psalm is, God is king forever and ever. God, you will reign forever and ever. Who's the king of Israel? God's the king of Israel. Yahweh is the king of Israel, not Moses. Moses is not a king. Moses is a prophet. God's going to be their king. And yet, he knows that there will be a time when they do need a human king. It's not too long after what, the, the, the events at Sinai it's not too long after that in the book of Joshua where we're told, and in Judges where we're told, everybody does what's right in their own eyes because there's no king in Israel. There's no human king. And so people just do whatever they want. And it's a chaotic mess. It's sinful and it's broken. I'll leave you to go and read the last few chapters of the book of Judges. Not gonna get into it here, but it has to do with, uh, it has to do with um, uh, sexual assault of a woman has to do with cutting her body up into 12 parts and shipping it all over the country uh, to, 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 so people could see how bad things were. This is what it's come to because there's no human king. And God says in Deuteronomy 17, and you can look at that with me. This is the first of our Old Testament readings. God says way back before this, he tells Moses, someday you're going to need a king. And you're going to come to me and you're going to say, yes, God, you are our king, Yahweh, you are the king of Israel, but we want a human king too. We want a human king to lead us. And when that happens, I'm going to set up some ground rules, God says. Verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. God doesn't hate horses. It's, it's not that God is against the equestrian arts. It's that in this context, horses, this is military equipment. These are the machines that drive the chariots. And God says, you're not going to like, collect military equipment for yourself. You're also not going to acquire women for yourself. He shall not acquire many wives, verse 17, for himself. At the end of verse 17, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So he's not going to, your king's not going to build up military equipment. Your king is not going to collect women. And your king is not going to get rich off being king. Well, this is like, this is a description of just about every king and president that's ever lived. That's what they do. They collect military power. They collect women. They collect money. God says, your king is going to look different than that. And the reason why is, is because your king will be a different kind of king than all of the kings. Your king will be an under king. Your king won't actually be the main king. He'll be the human sub king to me. I will be the number one king. And that's why he says in verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. In other words, this, king is not gonna be the lawgiver. It will not be in your case that the words of the king are law. The king himself will have to sit underneath a higher law, the law of the creator God, and submit to that. Because, pay out here, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. He is just gonna be a human being like you. He's gonna be no better than you. He's not gonna be allowed to think he's better than you by taking your women, by taking your money, and by forcing you to fight in his armies. 
He is going to be like you. And the way to do that is to constantly remind him by a reading of the law every day that he sits underneath me and he is beholden to my law. He doesn't get to speak law into existence. He has to speak my law to you guys and guide and protect you through my will, not his own will. All right, that's great theory. If you know anything about the story of Israel, this is not exactly what happens, but it's what God wants to happen. God provides this human king. He's supposed to be different than them. He ultimately gives Israel David. Now, David is an incredibly um, important figure in the story of the Bible. In fact, we're gonna talk, I'm talking about David now, and I'm gonna talk about David next week as well. We're gonna talk about the covenant that God makes with David. David is a rich character. David is, he's a king, and so he's not exactly like me and you, but he's very round. He's not flat. If you read the story of David and then ask yourself the question, is David a good guy or a bad guy? The answer has to be yes, he's both. At times, he's like incredibly tuned into the will of God. He's super close to the heart of God. He's passionate about worship and relationship with God. At times, he's the king, the anti-king that is described against in Deuteronomy 17. At times, he's a collector of military equipment, women, and money. So like me and you, he's both, those of you who are believers, he's both beautifully forgiven, wonderfully redeemed, and at the same time, broken at his very core and prone to do the wrong thing, prone to constantly wander from the God that leads him. Yet, he is God's choice. God if you can look at the second, the second Old, Old Testament reading B, 1 Samuel 16, God anoints, through Samuel, God anoints David. This happens now. Look at the very last two verses. God tells Samuel, arise, anoint David, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil, so he's got this little cask, and it's got olive oil in it. We don't do this in our culture. You know, we have different, way, we have different weird uh, uh, rites and rituals that we bring a president or a judge or a congressperson into office with. This is theirs. Samuel takes this cask of oil and pours it on David's head, anoints him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, some of you know this. In verse 13 there, the word anointed, Samuel takes the horn of oil and he pours the oil. He anoints David's head with oil. The Hebrew word behind that is the word Messiah. It's, it's just the verb for Messiah. In other words, David has been Messiahed. He's had oil poured, poured. He is now the Messiah. He's had oil poured on his head, marking him out as the chosen one to lead and defend God's people. He's going to be the new king. He is the Messiah. Messiah just means someone whose head has had oil poured on it in order to be the king. The very next thing that David does in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, is, do you guys know this? Don't respond, I'll tell you. He kills Goliath. He, the famous story of you know, the Philistine army comes, they've got the big tall guy, he's a warrior, nobody wants to fight against him. He challenges Israel to a mano a mano fight, whoever wins, wins. This isn't unheard of in the uh, ancient world. The Iliad tells a similar story where a warrior from Troy and a warrior from Achaia decided to do a one-on-one -on -one battle to decide the whole war. This happened in the ancient world sometimes. The only problem is nobody is as big and strong as Goliath, and so nobody wants to go out there. Who should go out there? I haven't mentioned this guy's name yet, but King Saul should go out there, right? King Saul, we've been told a few chapters earlier, is head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. Who is the, who is the person who's closest in height to Goliath? It's actually the king. 
It's the guy who should be the champion, the guy who should be, and he's not going to do that. He's looking around for somebody to do it until this uh, kid, David, decides he's going to do it. Now, he knows he can do it because he's the anointed one, and he knows he's bulletproof, (laughs) that God has chosen him to be the king of Israel, and that's going to happen. And so he goes and fights Goliath and beats him. This is what the Messiah does. The Messiah beats the bad guys. Now, David is broken. David is twisted. He does a lot of bad things. But one thing he does, which for a thousand years after this, God's people are holding on to and hoping that there will be someday a God-given repeat is he beats Goliath. He beats the bad guys. Fast forward a thousand years. Now this is, we're gonna you know, keep constantly jumping ahead in the story to where Jesus is at. Fast forward a thousand years. Judah is still in the same boat. They are still oppressed by a foreign pagan enemy. This time it's not the Philistines. This time it's the Romans. And Caesar is the new Goliath. And Caesar isn't a physical giant, but he's a military and economic and cultural giant. He has troops all over the world. And there's lots and lots of troops in Judah that can crush any sort of rebellion. But God's people are hoping that a new Messiah, a new David will rise up and beat back the Caesar, beat back the new Goliath. In the middle of this, Jesus shows up. He's a construction worker. He is, some people say he claims to be the Messiah. He's having a conversation in Matthew 22, flipping over to the gospel reading now. I, I, I'm going to stop warning you every week that we, we're going to flip around a lot in here for the next few weeks. In Matthew 22, Jesus is having a conversation with the, with the religious leaders, with the, uh, the moral majority, and he says to them, hey, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The Christ. Now, they don't think he's the Christ. It's a general question. When the Messiah shows up, who's it going to be? And they say, well, it's David's son. Now, this is not just a biological or a genealogical thing. It's, it's going to be somebody who comes along and does what his great-great-great-grandfather David did. He's going to beat the baddies. He's going to beat the big meanie. He's going to beat Caesar. And Jesus says, um, they say, son of David, Jesus says to them, well, how is, it, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son, Jesus asks, and nobody's able to answer him a word. All right, now what's going on? I'm going to need you. I know Jesus quotes it in Matthew 22, but for the last time today, I promise, I think I promise, yeah, I do promise, flip back to the uh, Psalm, Psalm 110, because there's... There's something I have to show you in the psalm that really highlights this. Jesus says to them, if the Messiah is underneath David, is David's son, then how, then why does David call the Messiah Lord? Why does David say the Messiah is actually above me? Well, where is Jesus getting this? Look at Psalm 110. Some of you know this and some of you don't know this. If you don't, this will be uh, interesting to you, I think. The Lord says to my Lord, this is the first line of Psalm 110, and then this is the verse that Jesus quotes, right? Now, if if you noticed that Lord is printed two different ways in that first line, the first Lord is all caps. I know O-R-D is smaller than the first L, but it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then the next Lord is just capital L and then three lowercase letters. And if I haven't mentioned this to you before, or you haven't heard this before, it's important that I say this is that the reason why the first Lord is in all caps is because that's the English translator's way of letting you know that the word behind that Lord is Yahweh, the name of the creator God of Israel. Now, why don't they just say Yahweh? Why do they say Lord in all caps? I'm not gonna tell you that. 
because we honestly don't have time. And it's kind of convoluted. They have reasons, and we can discuss them later. If, you want. if you're just super interested, you can uh, talk to me afterwards or email me. But just for right now, they call Yahweh Lord with all caps. The word, other word for Lord with lower caps is just the normal word for Lord. But here's Jesus' point. David is the Messiah. David is the top of the people of Israel. He's at the very top. He is the king. There's nobody above him in the entire world because this is God's people. And so he is the king of God's people. That makes him the most important human and the most powerful human, top of the heap human in the entire world. But David is talking to somebody, David is talking about somebody who's above him. He calls my Lord. There's an unknown character in between David and Yahweh. You would think that the king of Israel would be, it would be Yahweh and then the king of Israel, direct line. And David says, no, there's somebody in between. Yahweh says to my Lord, David says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there's some other king above David. And Jesus says, thinking back what Jesus says to the Pharisees, Jesus says, who is that guy? What's up with that? Why, in our minds, there's this champion, David, who defends us? Why is there somebody else above him? And what Jesus is trying to get them to see is this, is that, well, I mean, he wants them to see that there's a Lord in between the Messiah and the Creator God. But what he wants them to really see is this, is that your greatest champion isn't good enough. Our greatest champion is not good enough. We need something else. Now, there's something deep within the human heart which desires a champion, which desires a leader, which longs for somebody to come and put things to right. We, we all crave this. Now, now we as like Americans are like famously egalitarian or we like to pretend that we are. We do things on our own. We don't care about nobody. You know, don't tread on me. But then when we have, you know, when, it's, when it comes down to who's gonna be the leader, Good leaders versus bad leaders, we're passionately committed to that process and that conversation. There's something about us that craves, every human being, that craves and longs for a leader to fix problems. Now, many sociologists leaning on uh, biological evolution will say, this is just the way, when, when, you know, you're born and you, you are dependent for so long on your mother to keep you alive. You, you have, she has to have you with her all the time. She has to feed you with her body. She has to watch over you. She has to make sure you don't jump off cliffs. She has to clothe you. She has to put food in your mouth. We're programmed from when we're little kids that you need somebody above you. I think there's a, maybe that's true. I, I, you know, I don't know. That's, there's, probably, there's probably a little bit of truth in that. But, but I think that what's actually more real is this. There's, there's, there's a very Christian understanding of the world behind this, which is this. On one hand, we know that things should be right. We're, pain, you know, we're painfully aware when things are not right. Like when your world goes wrong, when things are happening bad to you, when your money is gone, when your friends turn their back on you, you know this is not right. You don't just say, oh, you know, you're not just like an animal that's like, well, okay, I'll move on to the next bowl of dog food and see if there's something in there. You know this is not, this is unjust. And at the same time, we have that sense of justice. 
And at the same time, we have this really, really clear awareness that we're not able to fix it. I can't get more money. I can't make the friends who I've caused to turn on me, I can't make them come back. I can't get rid of my own anxiety. All these sorts of things. So we're aware that things should be right, but we're aware that we're not able to make them right. Thus, the desire for some mythical character to come and put things to right. For, now, this is a little bit related to what I said last week, if, if you remember, about the Son of God. The, 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 um, the, the centurion at the foot of the cross says, truly Jesus was the Son of God. He knows what Son of God means. For him, it means the Caesar. The Caesar stands at the fulcrum point between the world of the gods, the world of fulfillment, and the world that he lives in. And if he wants to get into that world, he's got to go up through the fulcrum point through Caesar. And he says, actually, it's this Jesus guy. This is something similar. Like we have this craving for a leader to fix things, to put things to right. He's up there, he's out there somewhere and we long for him. And there's different ways in our culture that we tap into this desire. If you're not aware of this desire, I'll try to make you, over the next few minutes, I'll try to make you aware that you have this desire. And one way, I've talked about this in here before, is uh, superhero movies, which are super popular right now, right? And why is that? Is it cool to see superheroes do super cool things? Okay, that, that's partly true, right? But there's something deeper than that. There's something deeper going on. The, the desire to walk into a movie theater and immerse yourself into the story on the screen and to feel the weight of brokenness. That's what happens in superhero movies. Things, everything's messed up. Everything's going wrong. And there is no rational solution to the problem. And then to think there will be somebody who comes along and saves the day with their superpowers. It's not just that you, why do we like superheroes? It's because it's tapping into this, this deep primal desire that we all have that somebody with superpowers come and make things right. And for a few minutes, you can, or for three and a half, four hours, I guess, you can sit in a movie theater and participate in this. You can, you can have this sort of cathartic experience I mean, eventually you're going to walk outside of the movie theater and it's back to you know what. But while you're in the movie theater, you can experience like, this is bad, this is bad, this is going to go south. To, in an instant, like, okay, yes, we win. The good guys win. It's the same thing with sports teams. Have you ever thought about this? I've been reading um, uh, 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 A History of Baseball, I Know I'm a Nerd, uh, by Dorothy Seymour Mills. And she's talking, this is 18th, 19th century baseball. And so baseball starts off in the early 19th century as a kid's game. It's, basic, it's related to the English game of rounders, and it's basically just a kid's game. Kids play it at recess at school. How does it get from that to, over the course of 10 to 20 years, being a thing that people will pay money to go watch grown men play? This is what we do with sports. You, you can watch pickleball on ESPN now. You know that, right? You can watch spike ball. This is, like, ridiculous. You can watch Ultimate Frisbee. These are just games that people play, but there's something about watching, it's something about watching people who are really, really good at pickleball, play pickleball, or baseball, but it's more than that. So I root for the St. Louis Cardinals, and it's not just that I like the Cardinals to win because I like the Cardinals to win. It's tied up with my sense of who I am civically. It's, it's, it's probably an understatement to say that St. Louis has recently been a hard luck city, Hard luck is probably the wrong way to say it. It probably has more to do with bad leadership. It has more to do with sin. It has more to do with cultural brokenness than anything. When the Cardinals win, it does something for me in my sense of who I am as a St. Louisan. 
It does something for my sense of civic pride. And I want the Cardinals to finally go out and pay decent money to get decent pitchers because they're losing. And I need, we need start, good starting pitchers to come in here and win. Why is that so important to me? Why is it that I yell at the TV? Why is it that I turn it off because I just can't stand to look anymore? Why is that? Why is it that I get so excited if there's some news this offseason that the Cardinal trade for like pitching ace, Joe Blow, I will be so pumped up. I'll text Harry immediately. Like I'll flip on the sports news to like hear what everybody's saying. Why is that? Because there's something deep inside of me that longs for a champion to come and make what's wrong with me better. And one of the things that's wrong with me, I know this is immature for those of you who don't live in this world, is that the Cardinals are no good. That's one of the things that's wrong with me. It's like this for all of us with lots of, di lots of different things. Some of you have bad fathers and some of you have good fathers. But all of you, including Harry and Kate and Reeve, I'm throwing myself in here and maybe them more painfully than anybody else, are aware that their fathers have let them down. Why is this so psychologically scarring to us? And even if you wouldn't describe it as psychologically scarring, why is it that you carry the weight of your father's mistakes all through your life? Determined either determined not to be like him in the places where he was wrong. Determined to like, I'm gonna be just like him in the places where he was right. Why is it that the shadows of our fathers linger so large over us for the rest of our lives? And the answer is, is because there's something inside of us that says my dad should be able to make things right. And when he doesn't, it damages us. When he doesn't, it lets us down. It'd be like going and watching a Spider-Man movie where Spider-Man gets beat at the end. It would be like that. It would be like rooting for the Cardinals in 2023. This is the way it is with political leaders as well. We invest so much hopes. Everybody in here who's taken any sort of civics class knows that the office of the President of the United States does not have within it the power to fix everything. Even if the person who was the President was a super dynamic, super righteous person, the power of that office is itself limited. And yet, why is it that we long for a president who will come and will make everything right. And we're so frustrated when it's a president who doesn't make everything right, a president who does damage. It's because we are constantly living with this thrum inside of our hearts that we need somebody to come and fix things. Some of us have done this with significant others. Some of us have believed, if I could just get so-and-so, or if I could be married to so-and-so, or if I could have a romantic relationship with so-and-so, and I talked about this last week. This is one of my examples last week, so I won't, I won't lay on this one too heavy. We think that person could, we won't say this language because we're too, we're too smart for that. That person could be my Messiah. That person could fix everything that I know is wrong with my life. This is what I need. Why is it that we're like this with ourselves? Why is it that we think, if I don't do it, it's not gonna get done right? Why is it when we go on vacation, we feel this need to call in to figure out how everything's going or to check our emails to make sure that everybody who's left behind is doing things right. Why is it that I'm like, I'm a little bit leery of having guest pastors except for John. I trust John more than I trust myself. And that, that's, that's totally honest. But like when John's not here and I'm gonna be gone, I'm a little bit leery and I think, oh man, I need to, I, I should be there. I should be preaching that sermon. The people need to hear me. I'm their pastor. Why is it that I think I'm the Messiah? This is the, more, this is the most depraved part of this, um, of this need for a, a leader or a champion is the false belief that I myself can be that leader or that champion. Now, you, you guys know what I'm saying. 
throughout this. I'm not saying turn your back on your fathers and stop looking to them for trustworthy guidance. I'm not saying turn your back on friends or significant others. I'm not saying don't put in the hard work to vote for people that you believe are righteous and are going to lead well. I'm not saying, I'm not even saying stop being a sports fan. I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not saying get less excited. That's not my point. My point isn't to get less excited. My point is to tap into all of those desires that we have in all of those areas and say, those are just shadows of this true desire that Jesus is pointing us to by quoting to the Pharisees, Psalm 110, that there's actually a champion above your best champion. If you could get a Judas Maccabees or a David to come in here and beat Goliath, to, to beat Caesar, it still wouldn't be good enough. If the Cardinals, if the Cardinals signed five ace pitchers this year, won 162 games last year, next year, and swept the playoffs and won the World Series, I would still wake up the morning after being the same sorry loser I am right now. If I had the perfect people in my life, if, if Angela was the perfect wife and my kids were the perfect kids, and you guys were the perfect church, and our president was the perfect president, and our mayor was the perfect mayor, I would still have a million and a gazillion different problems. I would still be broken because all of you would die and I would die and everybody would die. The Cardinals pitchers would die because what we need is we need a champion who cannot be beaten. We need a champion who's not just gonna win 162 games next year, but every year forever and ever and never die, forever be 27 years old and the best pitchers in the world and nobody can ever beat him. We need the president who will make every right decision and abolish Congress. And abol don't, don't, uh, don't by, by the way, don't like snip this out of the YouTube video. This is not a political statement. Uh, this is like in my, in my Jesus-centered universe, we need Jesus to become president and get rid of all of the forms of government and then himself rule because all the, all the rest of, even the best of them die. All, even the best of them that get voted out by people who are less good than them. What your heart truly craves for is the number one champion, is the number one champion, Jesus. The one who went to the cross and was beat by all the bad forces of the world, including Caesar. He was beat, but he didn't stay beat. He came back to life and he lives forever and ever and no one can ever beat him again. He is constantly a winner. He is the number one champion. That's what your heart longs for. So go watch the superhero movies, go watch the Cardinals, go fall in love, go get some friends, go vote. But while you're doing that, remember the end game here, what, what I'm really craving is Jesus. And Jesus is offering himself to the Pharisees when he says that. Like, hey, it's me. I'm David's son that's better than David. I'm the Cardinals pitcher that's better than the Cardinals pitchers. I'm the superhero that's better than Spider-Man. I'm Jesus, and I'm here for you. Amen. Let's pray. God, turn our hearts to you. God, help us to see your son as our one true Messiah not just in a sort of Sunday morning religious sense, but the, the, the one that our hearts are truly longing for, the one who satisfies all our needs, the one who wins every one of our battles and never loses. Father, we trust ourselves to him. We pray this in his name, amen.